Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've done more than 100 shows now, but for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. However, once in a while I break my own self-imposed format and interview someone I've always wanted to meet. Be aware, this is one of those episodes. It's wonderful to talk to architect John Toomey. Along with his wife, Sheila O'Donnell, John is the co-founder of multi-award winning practice O'Donnell & Toomey. Picking out projects feels invidious, but over the years, the firm has designed the Glucksman Gallery Cork, the Lyric Theatre in Belfast, and the upcoming V&A East Museum. In 2015, he and Sheila were awarded the prestigious RABA Royal Gold Medal. Towards the end of last year, he published First Quarter, a gorgeous lyrical memoir that tells the story of his formative years, from childhood in rural Ireland through to the beginning of his professional practice in London and Dublin. And that's what we'll be concentrating on today. John, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Hello, Grant. Nice to see you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm looking out the window, sitting on my stair landing, which was my base for the lockdown at home. And it was from this desk that I wrote that little book that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm in situ. Yeah. Well, as as you point out, we're talking over Zoom. We have a tradition on this show where we ask our guests to give us a little description of their workplace. All right. Maybe for you, it's like a two-parter. This is where you wrote the book. But also, it might be nice to know a little bit about your studio and how that's set up. Okay. In my case, this is going to be a three-parter. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) three-parter. Sheila and I work with about mm, 24 colleagues in a lovely old schoolhouse in the middle of the city in Dublin, not so far from where we live, just over the canal and into the city centre. And we've been there, you know, more than 30 years. It's a beautiful space. I'm very attached to it. And during the lockdown, I did three kind of refurbishments of that space, including making a kind of mezzanine structure, which I really enjoyed doing when the office was empty. Right. To come back to the lockdown. Sheila and I worked here from home and she has a nice little studio space facing the garden in our three-story house downstairs. And I set myself up on a little desk here on the stair landing at the top of the house But out the window, at my stair hall window, I'm looking at the end of my garden where, out of frustration with my cooped up surroundings, I went for planning permission during the lockdown to build a studio at the end of the garden. We bought this house about 30 years ago because it has a back lane and it had a site and you could build a studio there. But it took the lockdown to push us over the edge and to actually do it. (laughs) So today... I'm looking at my whole landing window and I can see my studio, which is two weeks from completion, I would say. So the next time you talk to me, Grant, I'll be in my garden studio. And the idea is, of course, that the office is the base for work and for teamwork. But the studio is a base for other kinds of activities, writing, reading, and kind of parallel activities like collaboration or furniture or other sorts of as yet undefined excursions. (laughs) So during that lockdown, because I got the COVID, you know, more or less the first day you could get it, 
And during that period, I just started to think about the places I had lived when I was young. And I mean, I had this unusual, I mean, it's not heroic, it's just unusual that my father was a site engineer and so our growing family moved house to all over the small country of Ireland, but county to county and in different kind of rented situations. And so I thought it might be interesting for me to just try and reconstruct the formative images from my childhood. Well, didn't it start, wasn't there an email from your sister that started the whole, the whole idea, <laughs> exactly the ball rolling? That's started. I was sitting here late one night at this very desk, and uh, as you do when there's no definition between morning and evening, mm. and I got an email from my sister. There's about a 10-year gap in our sibling group, and my younger sister, she might have been trapped in our house, and she wrote and she said, what was it like, you know, before she was born? And when, Because in her life, my parents always lived in one place. Mm. And she just Which asked is what, this, Dundalk, right? Yeah, Dundalk. And it's sort of halfway between Dublin and Belfast, just on the border. And my sister asked just about those conditions. And I hadn't thought about it as being a different condition to, for instance, hers. In answering her, I remember writing in the email, I don't remember, can't remember the house where I was born. And then I thought, gosh, that sounds like the first line of something. And, Which was the opening line of the book. And it's the opening line of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that funny? It's funny. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you had four house moves through three counties by the time you were five. Did that leave yeah. a lasting impression on you? I mean, I think by the time I was 10, I had lived in six houses. And I was in this position of sitting beside someone at school who I had only just met, if you know what I mean. Mm. And beyond that, I didn't know anybody from my childhood. I mean, I have two sons now and they have friends who they made when they were in kindergarten, if you know what I mean. Mm. They, they have friends mm. from the age of three. But the way my life has worked out, I think I was kind of gear set to be on the move. And so even when my parents decided to settle when I was about 10, I kind of was thinking, where are we going next? You know, I, I didn't feel as if I was settled. Because I was born in Kerry in the south of Ireland, and I sort of must have thought that my family's natural habitat was back in that place. Mm. And so I always thought, well, these are only interim places. Or, I mean, that's what I felt. But that hasn't gone into your adult life. No, no, no. I'm the most settled person you've ever met. I am, I mean, <laughs> I've had an extremely unadventurous life. But that feeling of being kind of on, at one remove or not exactly in my place, I realized that that probably is a condition of mind, you know, that was set quite early. Mm. I'm interested, John, by the period you decided to write about, and is, as we said, the story of your childhood, and, and finishes when you set up practice with Sheila. Why did you decide to stop there? That wouldn't be my story anymore. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, mine to tell, I mean. It felt to me simpler to keep it to my own formation. Sheila and I have documented our architectural lives through our projects, and I, true, I have written about many of those. In this case, I just wanted to tell the backstory, if you like, you know. Mm. I don't mean to make myself a hostage to anything, but I have found reading memoirs that is always more interesting, the part before the career gets going, because the problem with linear memoirs, people start and then, and then, and then, and then, you know, and it's either a series of successes or failures or whatever. And I kind of wanted to skip that bit and just think about before, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a fascinating story. And certainly for the first, however many, 17 years, I mean, very rural. 
yeah. story. And yeah. you were shown how to milk a cow <laughs> by your first schoolmaster as a gesture of welcome. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> which I love. <laughs> and you've described having a sheep penned in your hall on market day. Yes, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my parents are townies, you know, but I think my father's sites were kind of infrastructural. And so that was about the development of the industrial aspects of Ireland. He was doing Mm. factories and power stations. He was a civil engineer working for a construction company. So he would be on the site for two years and then we'd all move off to some other rural place for where he, you know, in the case of from Jambo, where the sheep market was, he was making a power station, coal-burning power station. So I, I grew up with these big structures going on around me, almost infrastructure structures. And did you always love words? I mean, there's such a lyrical quality to your writing. Yeah, I mean, I read, if I were on a train or you met me in a place, I would have a novel in my pocket, yeah, yeah. Mm. So I, I like reading. And I mean, I like writing to the point of accuracy, like when I'm writing for the office, writing descriptions, I enjoy that, you know, the storytelling aspect of architecture. But no, this is the first piece of non-functional writing that I've <laughs> done since my school essays. Um, but I, I have to say, I kind of enjoy the whittling process, you know, seeing if I could make it shorter, seeing if I could make it leaner. And the pace, you know, short sentence, long sentence, two words, stop, you know, I just enjoyed that measuring out of that and i would do it again i you know I, I enjoy it yeah for mm. sure mm. i mean the book features a number of important figures and threads not least your father and, and wife and we'll come on to talk about them i'm sure cycling features quite regularly and quite early too you write about receiving your first bike it was red you write that being in possession of a bicycle remains a pivotal part of my identity so what is it about cycling why is it so important to you I mean, I'm not a long-distance cyclist, but I do cycle every day. I cycle every day to work. I used to cycle every day to school. I cycled every day to college. When I lived in London, I cycled everywhere I lived there. I get up on my bike. I whiz off somewhere. And while I'm on the bike, thoughts occur that solve the problems that are either the ones I'm going to or the ones I've left behind. It clears my head being on my bike. I like to go on holidays on my bike. <laughs> Sheila and I have gone touring around Europe on our bikes. I found a way of getting closer to Sheila when she wasn't my girlfriend by giving her a ride on the bar of my bike to go out. I know she was on your handlebars, right? So, <laughs> so she's had to join you with your, your cycling fetish, so, uh, is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's a good way to get to know somebody. When my kids were small, I brought them around on the bar of my bike and, you know, you put your arms around someone and you get to chat in their ear. It's a beautiful mechanism, a bicycle. Mm. And you can fix mm. it yourself, you know, which, as you know, from fooling around with laptops, You can't fix them so easily yourself. (laughs) I would never be without a bicycle. And if cycling is important, then so is the Irish landscape, which plays an important role in the book. Can you see what influence that's had on your buildings, I wonder? Well, if I think about those little rural towns, I mean, in in the places I lived when I was young, you know, the very first places I can remember, they're small towns. For some reason, my parents, maybe it was to do with vacancy or something, they always rented a house in the main street in those little towns. So my image, you know, you could just wipe the slate clean and think of a childhood memory. My image is a row, like a terraced street or a row of houses like this, an angle in the street, and then at the end of the street, a hill or a mountain or an open landscape. And I think I'm very happy in the condition of containment at a 
crank in a street or something, and then a feeling of beyond, you know, a feeling of mm. outlook to beyond. I mean, this is a condition of comfort for me. And I love that in a building where where you can sit in a room, contained in a room, but with your eye on the longer view, you know. And I hope that in our buildings, I can get this feeling of the connection between being contained and the place you're contained. I remember the day LSE in London, you know, the student center. We yeah, yeah. I remember the day that was finished because we presented that design to our board at the LSE completely in terms of street perspectives because it's a very tangled and complicated site. Mm. But we, we said, as you come down this street, you'll see it like this. As you come down this street, you'll see it like this. And Sheila made a lot of watercolor sketches of those perspectives. But the day the building opened and we were showing the same board around the finished building, what they were all remarking on was <laughs> the reverse of that, that when you're inside the building, all the windows are faced to look down the streets. In other words, they had envisaged the building as an object that they would see at the end of the street. But in the way it's experienced, it captures the street back into the building. I mean, if you were thinking about the buildings you mentioned, like our building at the Lyric Theatre in Belfast, which is really about the streets and the river, or the one in Cork, the gallery you mentioned, which is really about the trees and the university or something. That moment when you're inside, but you're hooked to the outside. Now, whether that's connected with a childhood, uh, <laughs> you know, formative image or whether it isn't, I don't know. But I know that in my mind, I'm happy when I've got my back to the wall and the view ahead of me. You know, maybe we all are, though, Grant. Maybe mm. that's, <laughs> maybe mm. that's where we like to be, you know, sitting on a rock, you know, with the horizon. Yeah, yeah. School, as it is for many people, was a formative experience. And it's one of the institutions that you seem to have a mixed relationship with. I mean, it seems brutal at times. You write about how the first pupil to misbehave had to go outside with the teacher's penknife and cut their own stick to be beaten with. And you've kind of alluded to in the, in the early days, you felt quite estranged from classmates because you'd moved around and your accent was different. When you went to prep school, you say fear was never far away. You described the speed with which the priests could grasp a, a leather strap. From up their sleeves, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's extraordinary. Yeah, um, brutal. Was it difficult looking back on those days? Well, you know, I mean, I got away with it because I was clever. You know, I mean, clever school-wise. If I ever got hit, I got hit because I transgressed within the danger zone. And I guess that was to be expected because those were the rules. But I mean, much more damaging was to see people getting what they call punished. Mm. I mean, it was actually called punished. Punished for not being able to do their maths or not being able to spell their words, you know, and, and they would get called up to the front of the class and they would get a routine beating, the same people, on a weekly basis. And I would be sitting there getting my good marks or, or if I ever got called up, it was because I had decided to break the rules. But it was just so divisive. I mean, it's so divisive, a pedagogical system to punish the ones for whom it was difficult and then to make the ones for whom it was easy to make them sort of favoured. They didn't have anything to be favoured for, you know. I mean, if you can draw or if you can add your sums or it doesn't, I mean, there's no reason not to be beaten or to be beaten, you know. So, and I felt it was a very, very unjust system. Now, the first one you mentioned, I didn't mind. <laughs> the one where you went out and picked the stick. Because, I mean, that was just so funny. And actually, everybody 
pick the same stick, if you know what I mean, because no one would pick a big stick and no one would pick such a silly little small stick that the teacher would go out and pick it themselves. So there was more or less a, you know, like a Euro stick, you know what I mean? <laughs> a normal stick. <laughs> and, and in a way, junior school, primary school was not the same because the classroom was the control of one teacher and that teacher pretty well knew the group. So I would say there was the rural national school was more um, democratic. But once I got into prep school, there was a system and there were grades given and punishments were in response to the grades. Very, very bad. Very bad. And the Catholic Church and its pervading mm. influence in Ireland is yeah. one of the threads that also runs through the book. Yeah. How did the priest's behaviour shape your faith or indeed lack of it? Well, I guess it, when I was at my most, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm not at my impressionable age now, but when I was at my most impressionable age, <laughs> I think I was sort of, beyond it. I mean, I kind of thought these are bad guys or something, you know, um, but there, of course there's good guys and there are, you know, heroically inspirational teachers. I went through a religious phase when I was in my teenage. Um, maybe every teenager does. I mean, in the Irish system, you know, where you think, oh Christ, do I have a call to the priesthood? You know, all that stuff. And then I, especially with the Poetry we had in school, I think there was a very strong kind of pantheistic, you know, wordsworthy and kind of culture going through our education. God all around in nature and all that. So definitely when I was, you know, when I was 14, I felt I was operating on a kind of deistic plane of worship. But, you know, in my private life, it wasn't the priests who made an atheist of me, if you know what I mean. It was just the collapsing world or something. I mean, when I was growing up, the churches were full and nowadays the churches are empty. So the behavior of the clergy, the exposure to the wider world of the behavior of the clergy upended yeah. their control here. It's the biggest change in our society is the authority of the cleric is now gone, is a subject of ridicule. Mm. Strange. So we have all these empty churches around. The, I'm looking out at an absolutely beautiful building outside my window. We're looking into the back of a 19th century colossal Catholic church with a beautiful copper dome. And I don't know who's in it. And I'm looking at the back of it, which is a good position to be in. I remember my mother, when we bought this house 30 years ago, my mother said, you've bought a house in the shadow of the Catholic church. <laughs> <laughs> well, you talk about your mother. I was going to talk about the influence of your father, which is impossible to avoid, particularly in the early chapters. I wonder if you're expecting him to figure quite so large when you set out to write. As you say, he was a man of few words. Yeah. I thought I was going to be writing about yards or gates or gateposts or threshold, you know, front doorsteps or something. I, I, I thought I would be writing only about places. It didn't take long before my father popped his head in the paragraph. And then I had stuff to sort out, which was the sort of mystery of, you know, my father's wartime life, which he had never spoken about. So I decided to find out a bit about that. And even then I found I, you know, I wasn't finished. He wasn't finished with me or me with him. He died about 12 years ago. And actually even in the years before that, like say last three years of his life, he had this confusion of mind, you know, which made him difficult to relate to directly. If you like, you were only minding him, if you know what I mean. But when I was young, I mean, he was a moral force for sure, but he was also kind of intriguing or, um, 
you know, he was a man of mystery in some way. And he was very attentive with his time. So I spent a lot of time doing things with him. It sounds as though he struggled with the death of his own father, your grandfather, who died at sea. yeah, yeah. He told me, we went to bury my father's older brother, a man I had never met. We went to bury my uncle. And on the way back, my father suddenly started talking about his childhood life and the traumas he suffered. Because my grandfather was a bit of an adventurer. And in one of his sailing adventures, his ship got wrecked, his boat got wrecked, and he got drowned. And my father was at school at the time. And that's this amazing thing that my father was at boarding school and he was called out of study, you know, out of the study session after school. And the headmaster or whatever, prince, school principal said, your father's been drowned, the body's not found. Go back to your study. Um, we'll let you know when there's further information. So my father's 16, he's away from home. And he used to go on those voyages with his father. So this was his first year in boarding school. It was only his two final years. He blamed himself for not being there, if you know what I mean. Mm. As he said to me at the time, I just thought it was beautiful. He went wild in his mind, he said. And it led to all sorts of things like his early signing up for the British Navy during the war and, you know, and maybe the disruption in his family life. So, yeah, there's a story there in the background. Mm. It was interesting to work out, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's quite a shocking moment when he comes to visit you in Dublin in your student years, hands you a note with a quote from the Bible and tells you you wouldn't be welcome in the family house unless you stopped talking about your lack of faith. Yes, yes, it was. But things were patched up. It was a shocking moment. I'm glad to see you've read this book, Grant. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have. <laughs> in two sittings. I mean, I, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But yeah. it, I mean, it really is. It's, you know, I, I write notes when I'm reading these things and I just wrote, wow, next to that particular passage. Oh. Well, I had this kind of little haunt. It's a wonderful cafe. A big cafe used to be in, I mean, it's still there, but it used to be a wonderful place called Bewley's. And that was my hangout when I was a student. And I'd say very likely it was my father's hangout when he was a student in Dublin. You know, it's an old oriental cafe. So we we met there for a coffee. And we, I mean, we had a very close relationship, trusting anyway. But I had, it's true in between the years of, you know, 15 to 18 to 19, as I went through my anti-theism phase, I, I had this habit of getting into rows with my mother. I was really close and really encouraged by my mother when I was young. But in those teenage years, I kind of put it to her, kept sticking it to her, you know. <laughs> and I think I, I think they were just fed up of it. And I think he was sent up to give me a message to tell me to get out of their hair. And what was so shocking to me was he gave me this analogy that it would be better for him to be drowned in the deepest sea than to corrupt one of the little ones, you know. This is Christ to the... And uh, I I thought that was really shocking because uh, his father drowned in the sea and my dad nearly drowned in the sea when he was in the Navy and it was a terrible thing to say to me and I felt furious about it. Yeah, yeah. Big mistake on his part. <laughs> How important was he to your choice of career, though? Oh, crucial. I used to draw in his office. I mean, first of all, I used to work with him on land surveying and measurement and all that sort of staking out the ground. And, you know, we did a lot of work together in the summers when I was young. And anyway, I grew up kind of drawing, you know, just drawing as a habit when I was a child. And then I would draw on his 
blueprints, you know, on, on the work. He was just on the back of his pages. But then I worked as his kind of assistant when I was young, you know, lettering drawings or setting out drawings for him. He's an engineer, so he was doing all kinds of drafting work and map making and so on. And I did a fair amount of that. And my mother had this sort of idea that, you know, we would be Toomey and Toomey, Toomey and Son. You know, we would, his name is John Toomey and we'd all be engineers. <laughs> I had a very, very determined, I thought that I wasn't going to be my father, you know, not number two, if you know what I mean, because he's a withdrawn kind of person and I was a much more extroverted person. So I thought I'm definitely not doing that. But he was very encouraging to me in the idea of archaeology or in the idea of architecture. We, I mean, we had a common interest in archaeology. It turns out he had studied a little bit of archaeology when he was in college, so maybe I used to go out on archaeological outings with him. And, and then for some reason, and I just should have asked him why, he subscribed to the London magazine Architectural Design, you know, in the 60s when I don't think there were many engineers in Ireland having that pile up outside their door. So when I was working with him, I read all the early ADs, you know. So I had, I mean, I, you know, I was looking at Sterling's work and reading Alvin Bayarsky and reading Kenneth Frampton, you know, when I was 14. And I'd never met a single architect and I'd never seen a, you know, I just didn't, but I saw it in the magazines. So certainly architecture was my first choice and he was really encouraging to me in that. And it, I remember him saying that if I didn't get into Dublin and study in UCD, I could always go to Liverpool. Uh, he had once had a brother who lived in Liverpool and he knew the Liverpool School of Architecture. So, you know, I could have ended up going to Liverpool to study architecture. It's funny. Yes. Because now I'm designing the Liverpool School of Architecture. You are so correct to point out that my father runs right through that book. You know, there's a lot about him in that book. How did you feel when he died, John? Relieved because he wasn't himself, you know. Right. I mean, he's an amazing person that, you know, you'd come in and he'd be reading Dante or he'd be reading a diary of Samuel Pepys or he was always reading and doing the most difficult crosswords and puzzle solutions, you know, and fixing things with string and elastic bands and, you know, taking engines apart, and all that sort of engineering stuff. So then when he got addled, you know, when he started to lose it, it was very sad to see. I think everybody who's older parents of cognitive deterioration suffer that despair. And so did he suffer that despair. So I think I was happy for him when he was released from that situation. It didn't occur to me to feel anything except helpful in the process, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And it yeah. wasn't until later that the loss hit home. Yeah. Well, you describe a very poignant moment in the V&A. Six years later, I think. <laughs> There's a beautiful exhibition at the V&A about liners. I went to it because I'm working on the V&A and I was interested in how they do their exhibitions and the history of the liner. And I'd be very interested in ships and cross sections through ships and all that lovely stuff that was in the exhibition. And I just came around the corner and there in a small screen about the size of, you know, a laptop, um, there was a little film of the deck of the Queen Mary. They brought all the British Navy across the Atlantic, you know, they stripped out all the rooms and made them all into bunks. And there were thousands of sailors on Queen Mary going across to North America. It was an aerial view of that. And you could see them in the motion of the waves. You could see the sailors going to the left and going to the right on the deck of the Queen Mary. 
And it looks very beautiful, like little dots crossing. The, and I suddenly realized one of those dots is my dad, you know, because he went to America to pick up his aircraft carrier, which was a Canadian aircraft carrier. They went to San Francisco and then he came back through the Panama Canal and then he was engaged in flying around in the, off the aircraft carrier up in the Norwegian waters. But I was looking at this thing and I realized that one of those little moving figures was my father and I just was overwhelmed all of a sudden, you know, with my coat on in the middle of the crowds of a shuffling exhibition at the DNA. <laughs> People are wondering, who's that weeping man there, you know? But isn't that funny how things hit you at the time you don't expect? Mm. And it's something I'd never seen before, you know. I hope you're enjoying the show. This is just to let you know that the Material Matters Fair will return to Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf, this September from Wednesday the 18th to Saturday the 21st. Keen to exhibit? Do drop me a line at hello at materialmatters.design. That's hello at materialmatters.design. Also, if your brand is looking to reach the design world, there are a plethora of sponsorship opportunities. My partner, William Knight, and I would be delighted to hear from you. Right, on with the episode. You describe yourself during your teenage years as being an extrovert introvert. How did that manifest itself? What does that mean? I was giddy. I think I was giddy and playful, you know, adventurous. But I was always living in my head, you know, I, definitely. I mean, half the time I, I wouldn't be there. I'd be off on my, you know, I'd be off on my head. I read a very nice thing recently by Per Pedersen, who's a Norwegian writer that I've read most of what he's written, I think. But he said when he was playing, you know, Indians, I'm talking about cowboys and Indians, you know, when he was playing Indians with other school children, with his friends, they were playing Indians, but he was an Indian. You know, <laughs> when they went home for their tea, he was thinking, but we live in a forest, you know. And I, I think I was like that, that I got caught in my head and in my imagination, I suppose, you know. Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that still true today? More so, I think. <laughs> <laughs> less, less of the extroversion, more of the introversion. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, you were 17 when you went to university. Were you ready for Dublin? No, 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 no. I, didn't, I mean, I was ready to get out of it. Dundalk. But I, I was surprised by the city, you know. I mean, I'd only ever lived in a town. It's weird, isn't it? The country is so small. The places are so close. But if you haven't been, well, I'd been with my, I'd been variously on trips, you know, day trips with my father, with my mother. I'd never been on my own, you know. And now suddenly I was independent and nobody, you know, I just, like I went to college on the beginning of September. I didn't go home till Christmas. Then I didn't go home till Easter. Now I went to London for the summer and I didn't come home till late. Then You know, I just couldn't believe how free it felt. And Dublin is a small, or was a small city, but it was a city, you know. What was it like at that time? It was all of a piece. I mean, that's, it felt like a town, but it was, you know, bigger than a town, but it was, you know, you could walk around it and it all felt the same and it, there was no high buildings and the parapets are all the same height. It was all continuous. It was, let's say, down on its heel. But it was kind of beautiful and it was very easy to live there. Flats were cheap and things seemed to be available. And also actions, you know, if you were involved in a protest or something, you kind of expected that it would have a consequence, you know, because the system was small enough to see to the edges of it. Mm. I thoroughly lived my student years in Dublin. 
Yeah. Well, talking about protest, I mean, you were an activist. <laughs> in your student years, there was a sit-in at Pembroke Street to protect five yeah. Georgian buildings from demolition. That I walked past and I'm glad we did it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how was that early activism? How did that feed into your professional life? Has it fed into your professional life? I'd say there was a risk. I mean, I got very involved in student politics and then in, so to speak, street politics. And I think there was a risk that that kind of standing up and talking or standing up and shouting, you know, would have become a distraction or maybe even a direction, you know, that I might have gone that way. And then I remember at a certain point, you know, I was very involved in the aesthetics of the Russian constructivist, you know, when I was an architecture student. But then I kind of realized one day, I'd kind of rather stay here and draw that again than go out on that protest or go to that meeting. You know, I'd kind of rather work this cross-section out. So then I, you know, I just thought, well, hell, I'm truly, I'm actually more interested in in the form, you know, if I'm honest with myself. Right. So just in time, I jumped ship and stayed with the drawings. <laughs> It's here you, you, you met Sheila. Yes, that's right. And you bonded over films. Yes. I mean, you didn't get together straight away, so it wasn't love at first sight. Oh, it certainly was. Yeah. What took you so long then? Access, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I was 17. She was just a year older, but I mean, and she's so much more sophisticated with her Dublin. Her parents are academics, you know, she had read so much more than I had. And I'd say she thought I was a, I probably needed growing up, you know in her books. I remember the first day I met her and at the student dance, like maybe in the first week in college. And I just thought, that's it, you know, that's it. But it, yeah, it took us a while to get it fixed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, to be fair, she, you know, it, maybe it was a good idea. She had a boyfriend who ran his own jazz trio, you know, and, and I mean, I had serious relationships with, you know, that helped in a growing up process and we were always friends. But then when we, when it came to the it's a five-year course and we didn't take years out. So it's five years in the same room and the same, you know, same working conditions, very close conditions. So our alliance was pretty close. And one of the things I remember, Sheila and I wrote a manifesto to demand the change of the fourth-year program. We actually said, we don't want to work with this program. We want a different program. And uh, it was signed fourth-year students, which is true because Sheila and I are, were both fourth-year students. But we weren't all the fourth-year students, if you know what I mean. <laughs> we just signed it, fourth-year students. And I, and, I was, <laughs> and I was sent to the professor to deliver the manifesto, you know, which asked him to, you know, start again. He was great, actually, because I had in the, in the manifesto, which Sheila found quite recently, this thing, this typed manifesto that we made together. And we had written, we demand the end to the professional year. He was calling fourth-year a professional year. And I remember our professor, a real gentleman called Cal O'Neill, and he said, now, John, I think this is a very well-written manifesto. He said, but I think the word demand, before I bring this to the academic council, could I suggest that we change the word demand to request? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but good for him. He didn't throw us out of school or anything. He just, he just changed a word, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always intrigued, John, by couples who live and work together partly. I suspect because my parents are both GPs, uh, they're retired now, but they worked in the same practice and obviously have been married for however many years. So I'm always interested in, in what you both bring to your professional and personal relationships. Well, I know that, yeah, I mean, I, you know, architects do get together and I'm sure doctors get together. That's right. Mm. 
And doctors breed doctors and architects breed architects. That's they do true. tend to. I'm a black sheep. And our kids don't do architecture. But, well, you know, even if you weren't doing architecture, which you have to face that because it's the luck of the draw if you get a job or not, if you know what I mean. Even if you weren't doing it, it itself is an extremely interesting topic of general interest. So, you know, Sheila and I go on, <laughs> we go on holidays together, but we go on holidays to look at cities or to look at places or to look at buildings. I mean, you can't travel on top of a bus looking out the window, you know, without thinking about architecture. So if your life's companion is interested in the same stuff, we just have that interest in common. I mean, that's what we talk about. Not all the time, but that's what we talk about. And, uh, you know, look at that flight of steps, you know. <laughs> so there aren't boundaries, in other words. You know, around the dinner table, you're still talking professional architecture. Well, I mean, we try, you know. We have a second home in Connemara, which is probably very useful to our sanity because it makes us feel less cooped up that we can go off there. And we don't think about, if you like, the office doesn't come with us when we go there. And we thought that was a wonderful refuge and we've had it for 20-something years. But now we find it's quite a good place to go when we're doing a conceptual stage of a competition or something because we go and clear our heads and we work together in between going out cycling or something. So it is, yeah, it's true we have that old Chinese wall we thought we had has broken down. But we certainly don't bring business stuff there. That's not what's interesting. The business of architecture is not what's interesting. It is not a problem. <laughs> No, obviously. <laughs> Common ground. Going back to the book, there's a chapter about London where you'd visit in your student summers and eventually work. I mean, you took a number of jobs, including sweeping the streets, got to live with Joe Cocker. There's a surprise. <laughs> One night. Uh, and it's fascinating and oddly nostalgic for somebody my age who just caught the end, I think, of the London you describe, maybe. And I, I'm just wondering for younger listeners if you could talk about what the city was like at that point. Well, now, remember I... As I said, I had read all these early 80s from the early 60s, mid 60s. And I went to London first in the very early 70s. You know, I had this kind of post-war reconstruction image of the welfare state and the NHS and social housing and all that agenda. That was what architects were doing. Public service or civil society or something. And I looked and I looked to London as a center for tolerance, if you like, um, and a kind of escape from the society I had grown up in, London was shabby. Shabby in the sense that it was drab, not shiny, extremely convivial and extremely accessible. You know, I still find London very beautiful. And the parks and the river and the underground, I just thought the underground was so beautiful. You know, the wooden escalators and that noise they made and yeah, I was fascinated by the underground when I went there first, that you could disappear, you know, Chalk Farm and pop up at Earl's Court and this kind of mystery of it all. And then it was very easy to find a flat, live cheaply, and sort of find your own place in the big city. You know, it was very easy to become local. I mean, we used to drink in, in the Yorkminster, in a French house in Soho. And, you know, we were known there. I mean, the barman knew us. You know, we would get greeted when we came in. They would give you the bottle of wine that you always drank. You know, it was clubby. I mean, I don't mean to say it was exclusive, but it was familiar. You could get familiar, even though you were young and poor. And, yeah, London was a very easy access city for me. I mean, I found it to be anyway. And I think, you know, the people I knew, my friends, found it to be like that too. 
I suppose it's not like that now. You know, you, you could just decide to move flat, look up the paper and go to it, you know, move into a different flat. They're all damp and they're all dark and they're all yeah, yeah. <laughs> shabby, but, yeah, yeah. but you had options, you know? Yeah, it's not accessible in the same way, I don't think, at all anymore. No. It felt like a different time. The London you write about feels very, very different from the city now. And you could live next door, you know, to people of different kinds. You know, it was it was um, more villagey. I don't know, d- different. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm very grateful for the time I had in London. After college, you end up working in the office of, well, the architect you describe as your hero, James Sterling. Definitely. And my only job, it's the only job I ever had, really. Well, you know, I mean, I just walked into it and, and I was there four and a half years and then Sheila took my chair when I left, so I kind of stayed in touch with. So, I mean, more or less five or six years were taken up in the ambience of that office. Mm. I mean, can you pa- paint a portrait of the man? Because I think it's worth pointing out that when he arrived in the office, he hadn't built for a while, had he? He hadn't had a new commission to do a new work for seven years. So let's say he was the most famous architect in the world. I mean, as far as I was concerned, he was the most famous architect in the world. Uh, But his buildings in Britain had not been so successful. I mean, on the client side, they're spectacular and beautiful buildings, but he had kind of lost his position and he had a fantastically powerful critical position among the community of, you know, architecture culture. He hadn't had a new project commission come in the door of the office. So he was doing competitions. And I was taken on to work on a competition. You know, he, I was taken on for four weeks to work on a competition. And then at the end of that, he asked me would I stay and do another, you know, did another competition to do. So I went from kind of competition to competition to competition. And then in the middle of it, like after a year and a half or something, he, he won the Stuttgart competition. But when I joined, there were two guys upstairs building the Runcorn social housing, which he'd been doing for years, just building out that scheme. And there were three people in the basement. Well, I was the third. Yeah, there were two people in the basement doing competitions. And I was joined that team of, you know, two hot shots, you know, pretty good guys doing work. And I was the assistant. It was amazing, you know, five people. And I, so I, it was very, very intimate. And uh, very involving. And the first day I met him, if this is the kind of thing you're thinking about, because I knew everything that he had ever done. I knew every drawing that had ever been published. You know, and I was sitting in, around me were the drawings on the wall that I, that I knew from, you know, my student drawings looked like his drawings. And I guess when I sent in my portfolio, he just thought, okay, this guy can work in the office. He gave me the job over the phone. You know, he says, nice drawings. When can you start? You know, Monday. And I was in and he wasn't there. So he came in on Wednesday or Thursday and he came around the desk. You know, we were doing little starting points for this competition we were working on, just making sketches of what an approach might be. And he sat beside me and he took my drawings off my desk and went upstairs and then phoned from upstairs, his office just on the room overhead. And he phoned and asked me to come up. And I came up and he said, "Mm, nice drawings actually, John. Uh, I'll put you in charge of this one. Yeah, you you lead this project. So I was 22. I'd never worked in an architect's office. And I was with these two guys downstairs who could do everything. And I only had a few tiny little sketches, you know, and he just liked the direction of the sketch. And I said, I can't, I can't go downstairs. I can't, I just can't do that. I can't go downstairs and say, I'm in charge of this project. You know, it's my third day in the office. And I said, hmm, all right, I'll go down. We won't say it's anything to do with you, but, you know, good start. So he went down and he said, we're going to do this axis. I mean, it's a totally simple thing that I you know, just an obvious thing I had sketched. And then about a week later, I was still working on it and it didn't look remotely like what I had done. 
And I remember Crispin Osborne, who's a very, very good guy who worked in Starling's office. And he was doing the Runcorn stuff upstairs and was a really great kind of teacher person. Crispin came by my desk one night. I was drawing it away, you know. And Crispin said, so you thought you were the mini maestro? He said, so you find out that it doesn't stay in one place, does it, or something? And then you realize that Sterling is like an editor, you know, or like a, he just takes an idea and goes wherever he likes with it and inflex and deflex. And the whole office is working to help him find his course. But his ability to hold and follow through with an idea was really something to learn from. I just found it so inspiring and so developing, you know. It was great for me. It was a great experience. You were very much together with Sheila by now. Were you always going to go back to Dublin? We left it with never a backward glance, if you know what I mean. We left thinking we have to get out of here. We're cooped up here. We're not understood here. You know, all that sort of misunderstood stuff. Because our student work had not been appreciated by our teaching staff. Well, I told you about the manifesto. We were probably just a flea in their ear, you know. We felt we'd gone off to start again. But after a while, you kind of realize that it's a real advantage to have a place that you can call your own. I mean, a place where you feel you might have an impact or have a, a wider, instead of just designing things, you know, that you could have a kind of a purpose. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of talented architects in London. And I think we felt, are we going to just do options and options and options, you know, for Sterling to turn over, to turn over, to turn. Like I was doing, you know, three schemes a day or something, you know, until he would settle on something. And this idea of doing something useful or getting involved in society, you know, I mean, as an architect. So we thought we'd give it a go. There wasn't anything happening in Dublin, but there was plenty of um, possibility, you know, in the place. So we lived in London like five or six years and then we came back to Dublin and we've stayed here since then. Mm. So what was that? It was the late 80s, I guess, wasn't it? No, no, no. We came back the late 70s. We were in London, early 80s. So he came back to live in Dublin in the 80s. Yeah. In the 80s. Yeah. Because you take a bit of a swipe at postmodernism or the postmodernist movement that was swelling in London at yeah, the we, time. Yeah, we didn't approve you of it. You weren't a fan. No, we no. didn't approve of that. No. <laughs> Sterling gets lumped into that, doesn't he? He does. He didn't approve of it either. Did he not? But I mean, of course he's, of course he's, he didn't like being in a position where people might be able to predict what he might do next, you know. He was a maverick. So we probably didn't approve of him either, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but that was okay. That was okay. Was it always a plan for you and Sheila to work together? No, no, no. I, I came back to work in the Office of Public Works where I thought I might be doing reasonable public projects like schools and post offices and useful stuff. Sheila was, had been to the RCA. She, she was a star student at the RCA. And she was teaching at UCD. I mean, when she left Sterling's and came home, she got a job teaching and started a little practice of her own. That's why we're called O'Donnell and Toomey, because Sheila started a practice as Sheila O'Donnell. She was a sole practitioner and she was kind enough to take me in. So, you know, I'm the second partner because <laughs> I left. the. I was. I had the advantage that when I joined the Office of Public Works, I got some work to do because I, I mean, I worked in Sterling's, but I'd never been, you know, on a building site or I'd never been to a site meeting or and and then in the OPW, uh, I was a project architect, so I got to do a few buildings. Learned a lot, you know, learned a lot through that process. What kind of things were you working on at that point? Well, not a, nothing like I expected. I thought I would be doing typical buildings that might have a civic kind of typicality, you know, like that's what I mean, like post offices and schools. And I didn't, I, I got to do kind of specialist 
buildings. I did a really techy kind of laboratory building for radioisotope testing of meat testing in a in a state farm in the state farm. And then I did a highly specialized juvenile courthouse to get kids out of the legal system before they were criminalized. So they're very highly specialized, very small but specialized buildings. And I more or less did them on my own. And the great thing in the Office of Public Works in that time is uh, because the the Office of Public Works inherited crown privilege from the the British system, the British Civil Service. And the crown privilege is that the state could never act against its interests. So we didn't have to go for planning permission. Okay. Why would the state build a building that wasn't correct, if you know what I mean? Being a project architect in that position, you drew the plans for the project and you built them. And there was no approval system. And because I was sort of semi-autonomous within the system, because they'd given me the job and the file lands on your desk and you do the project, whatever I drew just got built with no interference or no editing or no approval, except user approval, you know, that that will work yeah. as a laboratory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for instance, those two buildings I built, I, rem- I was saying this to Sheila the other day, that my first two buildings, I only ever showed anybody the plans of them. Meaning, that's your room, that's the room of your assistant secretary, that's the room of the scientist. But nobody ever asked to look, see what it looked like, for instance. So I was the only person who knew what the building was going to look like. Wow. Hmm. Which is extraordinary. It is amazing. And neither in the office of public works did anyone look at them. Except, you know, how, how's that going? And uh, it's going okay, I'm going inside. <laughs> and so that was a fantastic freedom, you know. Yeah. Fantastic. So that gave me a bit of experience, let's say. By the time the book closes... John, which is early 90s, I guess. I mean, it feels quite optimistic. You're involved with Group 91, a bunch of 13 relatively young architects working on the rejuvenation of the Temple Bar area. And I think, interesting, Ireland was firmly, or it feels firmly part of Europe. Yeah. That was important. That was what was interesting about the 1980s in Ireland. Because people say, ah, oh, it was a time of emigration and a time of depression and time of... But actually, the 1980s in Ireland was a time of engendering confidence i think in the potential of the country as as a you know instead of being a post-colonial country it had a new track which was to get integrated into europe and then you know by joining europe it got over itself in relation to britain because britain joined europe at the same time the European Union was such a great solution to the Irish problem, <laughs> including north-south problems because borders became more federal. And it seemed as if nationalism might be going out of date. I mean, I'm talking about yeah. in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. So th- that was a fantastic push forward in Irish life. You could feel it in the theatre, you could feel it in the arts. So by the time we came to get some work to do, we had a very clear, you know, absolutely clear thought that we were going to build a European city, you know, rebuild the European city. So all our early projects were about public space or civic space or, you know, I mean, small scale, but it was all about that reclamation, regeneration of the city in European terms. We were at that spot and we were in that position and it was a great start to practice for sure. Are you happy with the direction Dublin's gone now? No, I don't know. No, I don't. I mean, Dublin is a difficult city to live in now. Like none of our children can afford to live in the city. There's a huge housing problem in the city. Ireland became a wealthy economy, but you don't feel that in the streets, you know. It got built very quickly.
badly and very poorly, I think, in response to commercial pressures. The time I'm writing about, which is a time of potentiality, let's say. So a derelict site, you know, it's possible to be optimistic about a derelict site because, yeah, no, absolutely. you, you know, it's, yeah. it's an open question. Yeah. But once there's a crap, dark corridor apartment building built on that derelict site, that's the end of it for the lifetime of that building. And, and there's a lot of extinguished possibilities, you know, around our city now. So I wouldn't feel as romantic about it as I did when I was in love with it when I was young. Actually, Dublin is a very convivial city to live in and it's a beautiful city to walk around on. Where I live in the city, I can walk to everywhere, or cycle to everywhere. And I can go to the sea and I can go to the mountains. So, you know, it's beautiful, but its development is not, you know, I wish it was different. I wish its development was different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people like me are not at the face of that. We get to do special things, which is great. I don't know. I think when you're young, you get the feeling that maybe you could have a hand in shaping the wider world, you know, as an architect. But now I think it's more likely that you can just do the thing you get to do. You can do it as well as you can as a piece, you know, it's more fractured. I rely on this quote that I stole from Alvar Aalto, who says, we found out we can't change the world, but we can damn well set an example, you know. (laughs) I know that puts you in a limited position, but there's freedom, you know, there's freedom within those limits. You can play within those limits. I love doing projects and I love imagining the possibility of projects and I'll do it as long as I can. Very good. I mean, John... I've taken up loads of your time. Um, I should probably let you go. Thank you very much. Final question. What's next? Will there be a second quarter? First of all, I really like the project. I like the writing project. And I kind of like the inwardness or the recollection, you know, business. I think it's very absorbing. I didn't want to run into a career summary. I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to do the second album and the hit records or the, you know, (laughs) I mean, we have books about our work and I really, you know, I've enjoyed making those. So yeah, will I write more? I will. What will it be? I don't know. Fair enough. What should it be? What should it be? I don't know. Sheila thinks I should write a detective story. (laughs) Well, yeah. Why not? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I have no idea, but I'd be quite intrigued to find out because your writing style is delightful. Thank you so much, John. I really, really enjoyed that. It was lovely to meet you. Thank you, Grant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Safe to say, I highly recommend First Quarter. It's published by the Lilliput Press and is available in all the usual places. To find out more about O'Donnell and Toomey's buildings, go to o'donnellcolontoomey.ie. That's o'donnellcolontoomey.ie. As ever, to find other podcasts that I've done and to sign up to our newsletter, go to materialmatters.design. And there are images relating to the interviews on our Instagram page, which is also materialmatters.design. Finally, this is really important too. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive an invite to various Material Matters events, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft, and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.